You're listening to Earshot from WXXI News. I'm Veronica Volk. This week, many homeowners have been left out of COVID-19 relief, and they hope a new state program can help. If I don't get approved, it will be really hard because then I'd have to find other ways to get this paid off. And worker shortages have been particularly hard on residents of group homes. I feel like our daughter's living on a farm. She's fed and then she's put back out to pasture. All that from your local news podcast, Earshot. Support for Earshot from WXXI News is provided by Rock Vox Recording and Production, presenting Legacy Cast, audio and video recordings of loved ones telling their stories for posterity. Produced in a full service studio located in Bushnell's Basin. More at ROCVOX.com. When you think about the financial impact of COVID 19, it is massive and far reaching. One of the biggest consequences has been for homeowners. Many people who lost their jobs or suffered other financial hardship through shutdowns and quarantines also struggled to make mortgage payments. Some pandemic relief programs helped, specifically government assistance for business owners to pay employees and the moratorium on foreclosures. But those moratoriums have ended, and now some homeowners who are behind on their payments are stressed. My colleague April Franklin looked into this, And she found there's an assistance program to help some people stay in their homes. But it's unclear whether the funding will reach the people who need it most. She has this story. Veronica Maxwell loves to show off her home in northwest Rochester. I love to decorate, so my style might not... Maxwell, a single mother, purchased the foreclosed duplex in 2003 and renovated it into a single-family home. She has two living rooms. Both have fancy furniture, tables with sparkly centerpieces, and wall-to-wall decor. Maxwell is a hairstylist, and her basement salon is just as decorative as the rest of her home. Like many other small business owners, she says she struggled to stay afloat during the pandemic, and her biggest insecurity has been keeping up with housing costs. All the bills are just falling. You paid one, the other one due. So it's just really, really hard. She received a very small federal loan, but wasn't approved for any other grants that she applied for. With more than $6,000 in back property taxes, Maxwell is hoping she qualifies for a new federal relief program to get her out of the red. I did the application, paperwork went through, and was still still waiting, just still waiting to see. The Homeowner Assistance Fund is a half a billion dollar program to help people pay mortgages, utility bills, property taxes, and other housing costs. Applications opened in January, but plans on how to roll out the program started almost one year earlier. It is really important that we stabilize homeowners who are suffering as a result of the pandemic. That's Dina Levy, Senior Vice President of the Office of Community Renewal, the state agency that runs the program. She says roughly 60 percent of applicants so far are people of color, And they've been tracking applications daily to measure their target outreach. We wanted to make sure we were getting to communities that were disproportionately impacted by COVID and also who have historically been disproportionately impacted anytime there's an economic crisis, which by and large is communities of color. 
Homeowners who got behind in paying their mortgages during the pandemic were still on the hook once the moratorium was officially lifted in January. Community organizations like Pathstone and Empire Justice Center have been helping homeowners throughout the pandemic navigate their options. Mary Leal is the executive director of Pathstone's Housing Council. She says banks and the foreclosure moratorium provided short-term plans to keep people from losing their homes, but homeowners were still stressed. Very few have actually lost their housing, but they're all very concerned on what their next steps are going to be. Pathstone has already helped 100 families apply for assistance and will continue to do so until applications close later this month. The state reports about 26,000 people have applied so far. There's a cap on assistance of $50,000, and those funds aren't guaranteed. The majority of applicants are still waiting to hear back on a decision. Levy says it's too early to reveal how much money has been dispersed, and it will take time to review all the applications. There is a lot of applications that all came in at the same time. I wish it could happen as fast as people want it to, but it does take time, and we do have to follow the process. Maxwell applied in early January and is still waiting to hear if she will receive any money at all. But she says she's not ready to quit yet. I, I come too far to give up right now, you know? And I'm not giving up. I'm just having... Just, I just want to hear what they have to say. April Franklin is a reporter for WXXI News. This is Megan Mack from WXXI, and if you're enjoying Earshot, subscribe to our other podcast, Connections with Evan Dawson. Catch up on discussions about current events, arts, politics, and interesting people. Subscribe to Connections with Evan Dawson wherever you find your podcasts. Worker shortages are hard on employees and businesses and their owners, but they can also affect the lives of people who rely on those workers. Some people with developmental disabilities, for example, rely on aides in group homes. Ideally, these group homes have plenty of aides to care for residents, not just in medical ways, but also by planning social outings and other activities. But without enough aides, the quality of care is in jeopardy. Monica Sandresky is a reporter and host with North Country Public Radio, and she found that in the North Country, A shortage of aides has pushed some agencies to move residents into combined facilities. This has parents and advocates worried about sliding back to a time when people were put into institutions. She has this story. Amanda Hayes is out for lunch today with her parents at the Burger King in Canton. She's 37 years old with curly brown hair tied back in a bun and bright turquoise sneakers. Her dad, Ed, wheels her chair to the table. Amanda laughs as her mom, Carrie, helps her take a sip of her chocolate milkshake. (laughs) Amanda Hayes, she's drinking her chocolate milkshake. (laughs) She's savoring every ounce of it. She'll put milk in her mouth and just hold it there and just savor it. Amanda has cerebral palsy and can't feed herself or talk. Carrie and Ed love the noises that Amanda makes. They call them her happy notes, but they worry that she's making less of them lately. That's probably the first time she's giggled in a few days. Days. The depression, the big time. We walked in, she had her head right down. 
and won't even pick it up. Then she starts shaking. Amanda lives in a home with about 10 people and requires 24-hour care. Outings like this one are rare. Almost all activities for the folks in Amanda's home have stopped. There just aren't enough workers to help residents leave the house besides for doctor's appointments. Agencies throughout the state have been operating with less than skeleton crews, as one worker I talked to described it. Howie Ganter heads up the Arc Jefferson St. Lawrence, which provides services and homes for people with developmental disabilities. Right now, we have a 25% vacancy rate in St. Lawrence and presently about 35% in Jefferson. Um, It has improved uh, in both counties, but we still have a ways to go. Um, So it's been challenging, especially with COVID. Ganter says these agencies have their hands tied. They can only pay what the state allows them to pay. And right now, that's about $15 an hour. These are not minimum wage jobs, and they have become minimum wage jobs in New York State. Rhonda Frederick has worked in the field for more than 40 years and heads up the nonprofit People Incorporated, which runs group homes and services in Buffalo. She and other advocates were frustrated throughout former Governor Andrew Cuomo's administration, which withheld a cost of living increase for people who work in group homes for 10 years. Yeah, I I don't know what the administration was thinking, but certainly, you know, we got into this workforce crisis because of that. There's no doubt in my mind. And we just, we have wonderful people that, you know, leave this field, want to work in this field, but can't, you know, pay the rent or, you know, put food on the table for their family. This worker shortage she's talking about has real life impacts on people with developmental disabilities. Agencies have to cut things like field trips and arts programs, but way more important than that, they've had to consolidate group homes, resulting in residences with eight, 10, or 14 people in them. And residents are being forced to move. This is touching a very, painful nerve for families of people with disabilities. In the back of everyone's mind I talked with was one word, Willowbrook. So Willowbrook was a state-run school on Staten Island that packed hundreds of developmentally and physically disabled children into warehouse-like conditions. Then Senator Robert F. Kennedy described it as a snake pit. And the brutality reached national attention in a 1972 documentary by journalist Geraldo Rivera. Children, lying on the floor naked and smeared with their own feces, they were making a pitiful sound, a kind of mournful wail that it's impossible for me to forget. Willowbrook didn't close until 1987, during many of these workers' and families' lifetimes. So the realities of it feel too close. Rhonda Frederick again. We use the Geraldo Rivera expose on Willowbrook. Um, We show it to new employees to tell them this is not an acceptable way to treat any, you know, human being. Decades of law and policy changes put Willowbrook in the past and made group homes closer to the kind of living that we all want. So now with the worker shortage forcing consolidations, there's a real fear of sliding backwards. Amanda Hayes had been living in a home with three other young women for 17 years on Cherry Street in Potsdam, the village that she'd lived in for her entire life. Like every home, it wasn't perfect. 
But we had a lot of we had a lot of fun there and a lot of great memories. We had um, family dinners, and everybody would bring a dish or go down and cook together. So it truly was like walking in. It was like walking into a, it was walking in home. But in October, Cherry Street was forced to close due to staffing shortages. Throughout New York, almost 60 state-run homes have closed in the past few months, plus nonprofit ones too. So Amanda and her three friends were all placed in different facilities. Her mom, Carrie, talks through tears as she describes how hard it was to know how Amanda was handling it. What is she thinking? I was afraid for her. Like, I didn't want her to think, like, I don't know. And You're when so she, worried for what she was thinking. That, that's what I'm saying. That was it. Like, was she safe? I mean, did she do something wrong? Why did everything leave her? It's horrifying. Yeah, it just has, it has not been easy at all. So now, Amanda lives in a facility 20 miles away in rural Rensselaer Falls with about 10 other people. It's like going from a family home to a nursing home, as one parent I talked to put it. Rhonda Frederick of People Incorporated says this worker shortage is forcing them to make very tough choices. Those decisions are not made lightly, and it is out of an abundance of, of safety that they've made those decisions. You know, you get these huge houses, and it, it, it's going back toward an institutional setting. For agencies and parents, the solution is clear. Increase wages for direct support workers. Howie Ganter with the Arc Jefferson St. Lawrence is relieved and pleased that Governor Kathy Hochul proposed a 5% wage increase, plus a $3,000 bonus, but says they need more. It's going to have to be a combination of state resources and federal, but I think really for us to see a significant change in this environment to get our staff up to a living wage, which will then hopefully uh, bring in additional staff to work those positions, there's going to have to be federal involvement. In the meantime, Carrie and Ed Hayes are scared of what they're seeing in Amanda's larger group home. They're changed, they're fed, and they're brought to the living room to watch TV. Then they're changed, they're fed, and they're brought back to the room to watch TV. That's all I see happen. When Ed said this, it really broke my heart, but he said, I feel like our daughter's living on a farm. She's fed and then she's put back out to pasture. For now, the Hayes are taking matters into their own hands. They're buying a van that can fit Amanda's wheelchair to try to get her out more. And they want to build her a home on their property where she can stay on the weekends. Monica Sandrusky reports for North Country Public Radio. She also co-hosts their show, The 8 O'Clock Hour, which is available as a podcast. You can read and hear more reporting from NCPR at northcountrypublicradio.org. And that's it for Earshot. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, leave us a review, and tell your friends about us. And find even more local news at our website, wxxinews.org. 
Music this week from Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. I'm Veronica Volk. Thanks for listening. This program is a production of member-supported WXXI Public Broadcasting, Rochester, New York.